Brian is in El Salvador, and he asked me to teach on Galatians, where he left off. Um, by the way, today is a holiday. It is Reformation Day, as well as Halloween, so happy Reformation Day. Um, teaching through Galatians, uh, I really do believe it, it's kind of like we're just standing on Martin Luther's shoulders. His teaching and understanding is really foundational for all of what we think about the gospel and justification as much as we would like to not admit that um, we are products largely of the reformation we need to thank god for the recovery of the gospel um so my passage galatians chapter 2 verses 6 through 10 by way of preface i would like to say that brian asked me to teach the second half of a paragraph that is one argument <laughs> i think he was saving verses 11 through 14 where peter kind of is confronted by paul and there's an apostolic fight because he really wanted to teach on that that's exciting and <laughs> and i get to teach on half of <laughs> half of a thought <laughs> that is leading up to the greater thought. So, so what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to talk a little bit about the verses that came before it or else you're not going to understand anything. And I know that Brian is very, very thorough in his cultural analysis and his historical background, and he loves it, and he's really good at it. It's very helpful, so I'm not going to really get into it. I trust that most of you kind of know what's going on here, I will be very brief, um, but before we begin, I just want to say one thing. In Ukraine, when I began to teach the Bible, I was 19 years old in a little town called Preluki. I couldn't teach at all. It was pitiful. Um, not that I'm some great teacher now, but it was really, really bad. And we had a church of a bunch of people who would come into this theater that had no heating, freezing in the wintertime, people would shake their feet the whole time just to keep them from going numb. And the theater leaked, so there would be water coming in, and then it would freeze, and we would have like a frozen puddle for three months on the, the stage to where these people didn't complain. It was wonderful. I think if we were in America, everybody would have just left a long time ago for bad teaching and freezing. That doesn't sound fun. Um, in case you didn't know, it's really cold in Ukraine in the wintertime. It was minus 36 degrees the day I got married. Uh, coldest day of my Californian skin's ever life, uh, January 21st, 2005, <laughs> 2006. <laughs> uh, it, it, marriage has been great, but <laughs> life in Ukraine makes everything a blur almost. Um, yeah, really cold, and here, here's what I noticed. People would come up to me, and some people would just be extremely thankful they would say, the Lord really, really spoke to me. This was just really helpful. And other people wouldn't care. They would walk out and wouldn't think twice. And what it showed me was it definitely wasn't my teaching, but it was the heart of those who were listening that made the final difference of whether or not they heard from God. Because God wants to speak. His word is alive and he has chosen that preaching be one of the main methods by which he communicates to his church. To where it's not really dependent upon me. It's dependent on whether or not you want to hear from God. You want to draw near to God. You want to fellowship with him. So I would encourage you, um, 
God wants to speak to you if you'll listen. And if you'll, if you'll incline your hearts towards him, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God wanting to meet with you and bless you, reveal his presence to you, reveal his greatness to you so that you will grow in your love for him. It's really simple. So let's pray. And I would encourage you guys, ask the Lord to, to really align your heart with his. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, it is like a sword that pierces into the thoughts and intentions and motivations of our heart. We thank you that it is like fire and it is like a hammer that destroys the rock. And I believe that you want to, you want to bring instruction and correction and healing and restoration and hope there are many people here with many different experiences right now, and I pray that your word, your truth, and the gospel would minister to everybody. Father, we want to be receptive. We want to be sensitive. We want to be hungering and thirsting for you. So I pray that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, but I'm going to briefly lead us up to Galatians chapter 2. What you have going on, and most of you already know this, so please bear with the repetition. You have Paul who started a church. He is a Jew. He went to Galatia. Do you know that the, I, I studied Galatians. I taught through it earlier this year, so it was really a wonderful experience for me and for our church. Uh, Chernigif, there were probably maybe 10 to 12 maybe 15 Protestant churches, and most of them are really, really, really legalistic. And I don't mean to be judgmental or critical or arrogant, but I, I really do believe that they're not communicating the gospel to the city. That's why we need new churches. And this, reading through this book and studying this book, just it, it convinced me of the need for, for gospel-centered, living in, in everything. And while I was studying, I learned that Galatians, they're the Gauls. They, they're kind of like came down from France and settled in northern Turkey. Maybe Brian mentioned this. And they're actually related to like modern day Irish, you know, like the Celts or Celts or whatever you call them. Um, yeah, I, I, I preach a lot better in Russian, actually. It's really difficult for me to preach. <laughs> I don't know how to say things. Um, Anyways, Paul starts a church. He leaves. Within two years, some Judaizers or legalists, as I would like to call them, come in and tell the people in this church, look it, what Paul told you wasn't the whole truth. Paul doesn't really know as well as we know and as well as the other apostles know. The guy never met Jesus. The guy wasn't a disciple. The guy didn't learn properly. And he only gave you part of it. The second part is you need to obey the law, you need to be circumcised, you need to eat kosher food, and you need to keep the Sabbath in order to be accepted by God. And what they're doing is they're attacking Paul, they're attacking his, his authenticity as an apostle, they're attacking his message, the gospel, and they're undermining him in order to, to gain influence with their new teaching. So what is the gospel? Well, obviously, it's not that we need to believe in Jesus and do a bunch of stuff and be a Christian. That's not good news. 
Um, the good news is that Jesus has done everything for us, that we are undeserving, and based upon his work in our place by living and dying on the cross, we now can be made clean and accepted and righteous and justified in God's sight. So the gospel is what Jesus has done, not what we do. And these guys are saying it, the gospel is what Jesus has done and what we do. So how does Paul respond? He's upset. He's like calling them names in chapter 3. He's, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, who has hypnotized you, what has happened to you? He's astonished after such a short amount of time that they're abandoning the gospel. He's, he's furious. And how serious is the issue? In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's basically saying, you guys are leaving God. You're deserting him who called you. You are leaving him, God, when you are turning to this other gospel. So what's at stake is their, their relationship with God, their right standing before God, the, their lives, their eternal life is at stake. So it's, it's really serious. This isn't a matter of misunderstanding. It's not a matter of, well, they're just a little off, and we need to kind of correct them. No, it's they've left God, and they're, gonna, they're entering slavery, and we need to rescue them through defending the truth, the message, and even the messenger. So, again, Paul is being attacked they're saying he's not aligned with the apostles in Jerusalem. He doesn't know the truth. And right now, verses 10 of chapter 1 through um, verses 24 of chapter 2, or 14 of chapter 2, is Paul defending his apostleship, his authority, the gospel that he preached, the source of the gospel that he is preaching, and he is clarifying his relationship with the apostles in Jerusalem, pointing out that they approve of him and his gospel so that's kind of where we're at. And then it sets the stage for chapter for you know chapter 3, which is a, a, just a real unpacking of the gospel theologically as seen in the Old Testament. Chapter 4 continues, and then there's an application of the gospel for our everyday living at the end of the book. But what we're studying and what I'm going to be reading in verses 6 through 10 is the tail end of Paul justifying himself and his message before the legalists and the Galatians who are wondering, what's the deal here? Who's right? So um, I'll briefly summarize a few things in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says the gospel is from God. The gospel that he received is from God. It's not man's gospel. Verse 12, he got it through a revelation of Jesus. He wasn't taught it by the apostles. He didn't receive it from anybody, but he had a personal encounter with Christ and was was taught the gospel that he is preaching from Jesus himself. So he did meet Jesus, which is probably another one of their accusations. Verses 15 and 16, or 13 and 14, talk about who he was prior to meeting Jesus and the transformation that really took place after meeting Jesus. Verses 15 and 16 talk about how God chose him before he was born and commissioned him, called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, I've been chosen for this from long ago, and this is what God's calling upon my life is. Verses 17 and 18, after meeting Christ, he spent three years in Arabia before he met the other apostles. So he was already walking with Christ, following after Christ, teaching, preaching the gospel that he learned from Christ. 
by way of revelation, before he ever met Peter or Paul, the supposedly other apostles who are in disagreement with him. Verse 18, he only spent 15 days with Peter when he met Peter. Obviously, he's not a disciple of Peter or inferior to Peter or a product of Peter's ministry. In 19, he hadn't ever even seen these guys. They didn't ever knew each other. Later on, he rebukes Peter. So now we're entering chapter 2. Paul has he's detailed his transformation, his calling to ministry, his, his commission by God to preach the gospel, how he received the gospel. This is all him defending himself against these accusations. And let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Again, my part is the second half of one argument. Um, Paul is accepted by the apostles, is what we see in the first 10 verses. Again, defending his gospel and pointing out that he is completely in alignment with the apostles. So these legalists have no ground for the accusation against him. Verse 1, and then 14... Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So he goes up 14 years later. He spent 15 days with Peter. 14 years go by. He's ministering the gospel all over the place. And he takes a Gentile with him who's not circumcised. Again, circumcision meaning uh, an outward sign of what it means to be a part of the people of God. And can you be saved a part of the people of God now with or without circumcision was the big question. So he takes an uncircumcised Gentile up, kind of really settling the issue, I think, very clearly, bringing everything to a point. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. So he went up because he was convinced God wanted him to go up, not because he was being called up. He gets up there, he sits down with the influential teachers in Jerusalem, I'm assuming James, obviously, probably Peter, um, maybe John, and he clarifies to them what he's been preaching for the last 14 years. He's, he's really sitting down across the table from them and saying, look at this is what I am communicating. And um, he thought he might have been running in vain. What does that mean? He's thinking, I've spent 14 years preaching the gospel. The church is about to be split into a Jewish church and a Gentile church. The gospel is about to be lost. Has this all been in vain? Obviously, it wasn't in vain. Obviously, Paul defending the gospel is, by and large, why we have the church here today and the truth of the gospel that God loves you and accepts you based upon what Christ has done for you and not what you can do for him. You can have eternal life. That today remains largely due to Paul confronting legalism. So he sits down, he talks with them, and in verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So he's pointing out to these accusers, look at Titus, Gentile, Christian, uncircumcised, in Jerusalem, they didn't make him become circumcised. So obviously circumcision is not part of the gospel. It's really simple. Verses 4, verse 4, but yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So what he's saying is these guys who have come in who have disturbed us, they're not true Christians. They're false brothers. That is absolutely shocking that these guys who come in and say, Jesus plus 
being a good person or doing this or doing that means that they're not real Christians. They're false Christians. What does that mean? It means that the gospel, there's no add-ons. I know Brian preaches this at you, but I can't help but point out that if you add anything to it, it's lost. I've heard Brian himself say that, but please understand, Jesus does not save you. He, he doesn't take second place to whatever's first place saving you. You see what I'm saying? He doesn't say, yeah, I'll rescue you, but you pay 80%, or I'll pay 80%, you pay 20% by going to church. I'll forgive you, I love you, but you need to, you need to read your Bible and you need to serve in order for me to forgive you. No, they're, they're, Jesus alone saves. These guys came in because they wanted to enslave them because if you think that anything other than Jesus will practically save you, it's, in, it's enslavement, it's slavery. You will, for the rest of your life, live for this, this savior that's not a real savior and you will be sorely disappointed for the rest of your life unless Jesus is your savior. Verse five, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He didn't waver, he defended the gospel and today we have the gospel preserved for us. Verse six, this is where I'm supposed to be teaching. And, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Again, he's defending his message. Those guys didn't add anything to my message. They didn't correct me. They didn't instruct me. They didn't fix my problem, which is what these other guys are saying. They added nothing. My gospel is complete. Their gospel and my gospel are in alignment. And you know what? These influential guys, Peter, James, John, Paul is bold. He's saying, they didn't, whatever they are, however high up and regarded they are, it doesn't make any difference to me because I received my gospel from Jesus Christ personally. So he's, he's really clarifying his stance as an apostle. He is not inferior to the other apostles, and his message is definitely not inferior. Verse 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They gave to me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So what is he saying here? He's saying, look it. They realized God had called us to do this. They approved of our ministry and they gave us the right hand of fellowship, which basically means we are down with you. We are friends. Go for it. We're behind you. Do your thing. We are in agreement with you, right? So the apostles approved of his message and his ministry to the Gentiles and gave him the right hand of fellowship, friendship. Again, rendering his opponent's arguments completely empty in verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. No circumcision, no Sabbath, no kosher foods. Um, it just said, remember the poor. As you go out, remember the poor. Again, clarifying what's kind of the stage that's being set for Paul to argue for the, the 
justification found in faith in Christ alone, which he really, uh, he really unwraps in chapter 3. So this passage is basically Paul defending himself and his message. I hope you guys can kind of see that big picture. That's why he goes into the argument with Peter full on and really confronts him publicly and convicts him and rebukes him. Um, but what do we have for us? What do we have for Calvary? Slow. What do we have for me today from this passage, from these five verses? And I think there are a few truths that we can apply to our lives that are very important. Number one, um, Paul was entrusted with the gospel. Peter was entrusted with the gospel. And we are entrusted with the gospel. There is this concept of being entrusted with the gospel. What does it mean to be entrusted with the Well, what does it mean to entrust anything to anyone? It means that they are now responsible for it. It is in their care. And they will answer for it, right? If I entrust my money to you, I expect you to be responsible with my money. And I don't just give anybody my money. I don't have a ton of money. But if I had a ton of money, I was going to invest it into all kinds of really cool stuff. I would find somebody who knew what they were doing, right? What about your house? Another example. Do you let anybody house it for you? Do you entrust your house to anybody? Your stuff? No. It would be foolish to let anybody live in your house because you value your house. You don't know them. You entrust it because you know that they will be responsible if you have someone live there. How about your kids? Anybody entrust your kids to a babysitter? I have kids. And um, I won't let anybody babysit my kids. It's foolishness. I want somebody who's responsible um, babysitting my kids. There are some parents who won't let anybody babysit their kids, and I think that shows there's some sort of idolatry taking place in their heart towards their kids. But the point is really simple. The more I value my kids, the more concerned I am with who is taking care of them, right? Well, how important is the gospel? This in being entrusted with the gospel, what, what does that have to do with anything, right? Well, how does that affect us today? How are we entrusted with the gospel? What does that mean? And how important is the stewardship that all of you have, that I have? And if you say, I think the apostle Paul was entrusted with the gospel, well, he was. He said elsewhere, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God of which I have been entrusted. He definitely had an acute awareness of his stewardship of the gospel. It, it shaped his life. But we all are called to preach the gospel to all creation, it says in the end of Mark. Elsewhere, it says that we are, we are ministers of the new covenant. I would say ministers of the gospel. We are an aroma from life, of life and of death. We are ambassadors pleading with people to be reconciled to God. So this stewardship applies to all of us. It's really simple. The gospel is a message, right? The gospel is, is historical fact. It's an event that took place 2,000 years ago when somebody did something on our behalf. Christ lived and died for us. So I'm not entrusted with something physical. I'm not entrusted with finances. I'm not entrusted with a child. I'm entrusted with a message, a message that is extremely important. That's, that's kind of what 
what I, I really hope you guys see. You have a stewardship. No matter where you're at, no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've known Christ, no matter, it doesn't matter. If you are a Christian today, God has given you something, something extremely valuable, something that he wants you to be a wise steward of. How important is the gospel? Paul in Acts chapter 20 said that he considers his life of no value and not precious to him, only that he would fulfill his course, which is to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So what does that mean? It means that Paul's understanding of having the stewardship of the gospel was more important to him than his own life. This responsibility was was greater than anything in his life. He said, I don't know what awaits me, only that, tri- that suffering and chains await me. So he walked into absolute uncertainty. The only certainty he had was that he would physically suffer and his freedom would be stripped from him. Things that we all live for, things that we strive to attain. Health, security, financial security, freedom. I mean, this is the American air we breathe, right? Paul was willing to to forego all of that for the sake of this stewardship of the gospel, this responsibility to God with the gospel. Jesus said that if you, let let me read it. He said, let me find it. Um, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Jesus identifies himself with the gospel. Jesus says if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, you find it. It's worth losing your life for. Not, he's not talking about salvation. He's not saying it's better to, to know God and die than to not know God. He's not saying, he's, he's saying it's better to, knowing God, give up your life for the gospel, for him. This is a call to Christians. And you really do find life in that. So the gospel is, is the most important stewardship you have. Your kids are extremely important. Your job is extremely important. The Bible says that the Lord has placed you where he has you for his purposes. And your kids, by chance, don't have you as parents. God chose you to parent your children. What you're studying, I don't believe it's all this happenstance. But the responsibility that the Lord wants to impart to us is the gospel. It's the gospel, and that's not in conflict with the gospel. A lot of people like to say, wait, you're telling me that I'm responsible? I have a stewardship? Well, that sounds like legalism, right? That sounds like law. I just like the grace part. Um, Look at, the gospel saves us. Jesus Christ saves us. The continual application of the principles of the gospel sanctify us. I become more like God, more obedient when I apply the gospel to my life and I realize, okay, I am loved and accepted in Christ. I don't need to fear man. I am loved and accepted in Christ. I do not need to gain the approval of man through my attainments. I am loved and accepted in Christ. I don't need another person to give me meaning, whether it be a wife or a child or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. The gospel practically transforms us The gospel saves us, and we are now ministers of 
and stewards of the gospel. They're not, it's like the outflow of the gospel. It's not law. It's, it's sanity, right? We have this. What is it? It's a message that Christ redeems. He forgives. He gives life for free. There's nothing you could do but, but turn to him in faith. That is, that is a life-transforming message that he has given us. So what do we need to do to be stewards of it? We need to know it, right? We need to receive it. We need to practically feel it in our hearts to where it breaks us and it makes us weep before God that he loves us and we're undeserving and that Christ suffered, suffered a horrendous death for us. We need to, we need to feel it in our soul. We need to live in light of it. Yes, we do live in light of the gospel. It changes the way we view money. It changes the way we view power, career, relationships, changes the way we view children. These things all become part of the stewardship instead of in conflict vying for our hearts. We need to communicate it. And this may sound very old-fashioned and very, well, we need to have a dialogue, not monologue. We need to just like, we need to like recycle and have an urban garden and be like really hip and modern. Communicating the gospel is way old-fashioned. That's what like fundamentalists do. They just preach right? That's what people think today. Well, the gospel has to be communicated because it's not about what you do. It's about what's been done for you. And what you do can point to that, right? But the gospel is a message. It's not preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Like St. Francis of Assisi says, that's not true. Nobody's going to look at you and understand that Jesus died for them. They might look at you and think something happened to them. They, what's going on here? But they're, they're not going to know the, the objective historical fact that is gospel unless it's spoken to them. We need to speak it. And we need to defend it, not against false enemies. We don't defend the gospel against Islam. I'm so sick and tired of Americans freaking out about Islam. Seriously, go. the gospel's largest enemy is not Islam. Do you guys know any... Muslims who became Christians who were like, they love Jesus, and now they totally love Muhammad? No. I know one guy, I went to Bible college with him out of all places. He became Muslim because he liked a Muslim girl. She was in, not even given the time of the day unless he embraced her religion, which is really sad that she was more important than his faith. But nonetheless, Islam is not the gospel's enemy. Um, Buddhism, Hinduism, Yoga, as some would like to point out, it, it, the gospel is not being undermined by contemplative prayer, even though maybe that's not a good idea. I don't know. I don't even know what it exactly means. The enemy of the gospel is legalism. It's pharisaical thinking. It's self-righteousness. It's self-justification. It's criticism. The enemy of the gospel is the default mode of the human heart, which is self justifying, right? You guys are the enemy of the gospel. So am I. It's us turning to God based upon what we do. 
Come on, I know, I know practically this is how it works. I confess with my mouth that it's just faith in Jesus that saves me, but I feel really good about praying and coming to Christ in my relationship with him after I've done a bunch of good stuff for him. And I've read my Bible, and when I blow it, I distance myself, and I, I feel like I need to jump through a couple hoops, kind of climb up the ladder a little, and then I get my confidence back, and I'm approaching Christ on the basis of my works, right? Do you guys experience that? It's... It's because we are legalists. We have to fight against the gospel. We have to defend it. We have to preach it. You guys have a pastor who preaches the gospel. You need to be thankful for that. Do you know how many pastors don't preach the gospel? How many pastors are up here just, just comforting people and making them feel good about themselves? You guys are great. God loves you. High five. And there's no gospel? Praise God for the preaching of the gospel here. We need to fight legalism. My, my point is this, and I have a couple more, so I need to hurry. You need, you need to love the gospel. You need to embrace it. You need to have your heart burdened, burdened. Like there's a huge, huge weight on your soul, and you can't live life without thinking about the gospel, without thinking about Jesus and eternity and the need for forgiveness, and why so many people are so messed up. It's because of sin, and there's a rescue in place. You think about everything in your life. Again, everything you have, all your relationships, all your friends, your kids, your family, your work, your job, your studies, your, where you're studying, where you live, everything kind of comes under this overarching, the gospel is, it's burdened me in my heart. And then we become burdened with the need of the gospel. That there's so much crap being sold to people that will supposedly help them, doesn't help them. They need the gospel. And you know what? I'm going to ask you guys, how many of you grew up with a Christian parent? How many of you grew up in a church? You guys are rich. You're so rich in gospel content in your lives you guys are so saturated. Calvary Slow, there are 120 guys. When I heard this, I, I, was sh- I wasn't shocked. I was sad. I was happy and sad at the same time. There are 120 guys signed up here to go through a discipleship course once a week. There are 1,000 people that gather to worship, and in uh, other places, there's nothing. There's nothing. I would... I would Give my right arm to have 12 guys who are committed in a city of 300,000 people where there are less Christians than probably there are here right now. You guys are so rich. Your, your past, your homes, your church, your friends. I'm sure many of you have friends that love God. You have a bookstore next door to your church. You have a library right here. You have the internet that is just full of gospel content. Your church has sermons that are being downloaded by people all over the place because of the English language's place in modern-day Christianity. You have so many resources. You are so rich theologically. You have so much wealth, financially speaking. You have so much that you've been given. My point is God has entrusted it to you. He wants you to be responsible with it. He wants you to live in light of it and not take it for granted and not be indifferent 
to your theological and spiritual roots that are so deep. I praise God for this church. I praise God for those 120 guys. And I pray to God that there are other places in the world that will have that one day. You guys can leave Calvary slow and find other churches, right? None of you are going to fall off the face of the earth if Calvary slow ceased to exist today because there are other churches where people love Jesus, where the gospel is being preached within walking distance. Why am I saying this? So that you feel guilty that you're rich in gospel? No, right? Don't feel guilty. Be thankful. Praise God for what he's doing and know Know that he's given it to you. It's a gift. He wants you to structure your lives in such a way to honor him with what he's given you. He wants you to shape your future in such a way that that upholds the gospel. He wants you to support your preachers, your pastors, and this church and the propagation of the gospel. He wants you to embrace what you've been entrusted with and, and not be distracted by false substitutes that are Utterly meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Jesus said that he's not coming back until the gospel has been preached in all the world, right? Matthew 24, what does that mean? It means that the gospel advancing is of such importance that the timeline that God created when he was outside of time and eternity hinges and finds its climax in the gospel advancing. So it's really important to Jesus. It's really important to God. And it needs to be really important to the church. It needs to be embraced and rejoiced over this stewardship. And you need to run. Run with it. Okay, I have three other things I'd like to say. I'm going to very briefly run through them. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is identified as grace. It says that they identified the grace of God. What does that mean? You all know this. We can't do anything for God apart from his grace. We have nothing to offer him. He is in need of nothing. So anything that we do that is helpful and fruitful is all because of grace, right? Nobody would claim it for themselves. Look at me. Look what I've done. It's God's grace working through me. The Apostle Paul said that, right? Is that what he's saying? I'm sure it is. I don't think he's talking about Paul was saved by grace and they saw that Paul was saved because it had been 14 years. He was already ministering. What is he saying? I I want you guys to know, serving God is God's grace being manifested in your lives. Not enabling you to serve, but you grow in grace. You experience deeper manifestations of God's grace through serving. Why? Because you commit yourself to other people. And when you commit yourself to other people, when you sacrifice your time, when you give of yourself, when you are responsible to others, to the church, to the needy, you're escaping your self-interest, your self-absorption, your selfishness. You're actually growing. You're becoming more Christ-like through serving. So grace is experienced in serving, in giving to something other than yourself. I tell people in my church, Start serving, not because I think serving is like, whoa, they got a name tag, they are awesome, they are like, that is it, and then they just like love it, that they're somebody. They got a title? No. Because they will grow through serving. And if they're not responsible, and they're not giving of their time, they're not gonna grow. I hope that's not an overstatement, but I, I really believe it. Serve, why? 
Because God needs you? No. He doesn't need anything. Because the church needs you? Possibly. I'm sure there are needs that are not being met. Because God is glorified? Yes. Absolutely. And because it's for your own good. You want to you experience God more? You want to see more sanctification? You want to see more stripping away of the old self? Serve. You're walking into grace. You're walking into blessings. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it's all grace that enables it. So in everything, God gets the glory and we just experience more grace. I encourage you to serve. And lastly, actually two more things. Oh man, I'm just running out of time. Friendship and the right hand of fellowship amongst the believers. I'm gonna fit this in in like 90 seconds. They were different. They had different callings, different ministries, and they were recognizing God's, they were friends even though they were different. Does that make sense? What does that mean? It means we would be very wise to affirm and be thankful for the work that God is doing through other people who are not like Calvary Slow, not like you. We would be very wise and thankful to embrace the diversity of the church and who God uses and how he uses them. And what that means practically is I need to rejoice for my heritage in Calvary Chapel. I need to thank God for it and what he's doing today. I need to thank God for what he's doing in this new network that we're building a relationship, Acts 29. Two church planners a day want to start a church in, in America. Two churches a day potentially are being started. I need to thank God for the PCA missionaries in Ukraine and what the Presbyterian church has done in Korea. I need to praise God for the Chinese church. My friend just came back from Africa and he was working with Anglicans in Kenya and he was talking about all the things that they're doing. Praise God. Praise God for his work that is being done through many, many churches and many people. We need to extend the right hand of fellowship where the gospel is, is honored as much as possible. And lastly, he says, remember the poor. Why is that here? Why does he say remember the poor? The gospel Go forward, you're commissioned, everything's great, no circumcision. Remember the poor. What's the, what's the relationship here? What's the connection? Why is that the final thing that the apostles leave the, the apostle Paul? I think it would be because, and I will say remember doesn't mean just think about, it means meet the needs of the poor, right? Anybody can remember the poor. He's saying, he's saying we, need, we need to recognize that the gospel is connected to charity. Why? Because Jesus himself identifies with the poor. He says, when you give the poor food, you're feeding me. When you visit those in prison, you're visiting me. So when I see people in need, I'm actually serving Christ by serving them. So if I want to serve Christ, if I want to honor Christ, if I want to love Christ, he's not here right now. But the poor are. And he wants me to serve them in his place. And I'm honoring him. So I cannot be indifferent to the poor if I love Jesus. Why else? It's very Christ-like to serve the poor because he was rich and he emptied himself of all of his riches and became poor to make us rich, right? And we're predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. So, so Christ-likeness is, I'm interested in the poor. I care about the poor. It's not normal to care about the poor. It's an evidence of God's grace and the gospel transforming your heart. Nobody really does they might give to like a bell by Kmart, but like really investing your life in serving the poor, it's, it's what Christians have been known for for centuries. It's what Christians have been, have been thanked for for centuries. 
Giving is a huge aspect of what it means to be in God's image. Selfishness is not. Giving is part of what it means to, to be like God, to know God, his restoration in our lives. Selfishness and self-absorption is fundamentally opposed to the gospel. Fundamentally, at the most basic level, it's in contrast with the gospel. Go for it with the gospel and remember the poor because that's an outworking of the gospel. And lastly, God loves the poor. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And if I, if I love God, I need to love the poor. If I love God, I need to love my neighbor. And that means picking him up when he's been beaten and he's on the side of the road and taking him to an end and healing his wounds and paying for him. That's what it means. So I'm going to end now. So Nick, if you want to come up, I, I would like to just close with a few thoughts. Your acceptance and your forgiveness before Christ, before God, is not, and I repeat, is not based upon your responsibility being a steward of the gospel. God forgives you not based upon what you do with the gospel after you embrace it. He does not accept you based upon how faithful you are to communicate the gospel. Your acceptance and forgiveness is not based upon your service. You can't serve your way into heaven. Your acceptance is not based upon what you do. Got to get that. And your acceptance and forgiveness is not based upon your charity. It's important. It's interrelated to the gospel, but it does not earn us God's favor. What earns us his favor and what allows us to be accepted and forgiven is Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ and his life and death in your place. There is nothing you can do Nothing you can do for God to forgive you other than ask by faith. Just know that. But may your lives be shaped by this truth of acceptance and forgiveness and wholeness and completeness in Christ by faith. May that shape everything so that, so that the gospel is advanced so that you serve others, so that you give of yourself and sacrifice. Let it be a fountain by which you do these things. Let it be a channel in your heart as you experience the grace of God and you give the grace of God through sacrificial living for others who need help. May the gospel empower you and not enslave you. May the gospel bring about good works that glorify God and put your life in alignment with what is so dear to him and not empty, vain pursuits. If you don't know Jesus this way, if you haven't experienced this grace, this like weight of the gospel of being accepted when you don't deserve it, or if you have and you've long forgot what that feels like. I would ask you to turn to him now as we worship and ask him to restore, restore the gospel and apply it to your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for Jesus Christ. We praise you for his work on our behalf. We thank you that you love us and you first loved us and you came to us when we were lost and dead in our sin and you revealed your son to us.
We thank you, Jesus, that you love to give. And that you are, you are full. You are so full. Father, our existence is because of the overflow of your love and joy. Everything we have is from you. Everything we've experienced. Run from it.